Hello, hello, listeners. It's Kyla. I'm here to tell you about Code Whack, a podcast that shines a light on the callous American healthcare system and what can be done about it. It reveals the healthcare hassles that threaten peace of mind, financial security, and at times, patients' very lives. Hosted by Brenda Gazar, you'll hear interviews with the sharpest minds in healthcare advocacy. Listen to Code Whack wherever you get your podcasts or by going to codewack.libsyn.com. Did you get paid? 70 cents. 70 cents a day? Every two weeks. Every two weeks, you got 70 cents. Introducing Invisible Institutions, a new documentary podcast investigating the unreported and invisibilized horrors of the institutional system. These are real stories. When someone makes a call and says, we have a bed for you, we don't have a home for you, we have a bed for you. Coming February 2022. Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can check out our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with Kristen Pugh. Hey, And today we are reintroducing one of our favorite episodes. And this one is all about sugar. And it's our favorite <laughs> because we love sugar. And it's a great episode that will make you feel good. Right, Kristen? Um... <laughs> <laughs> It was definitely a really fun episode to record. For this one, we brought in Lex Sundersing, who is a, uh, she's an academic, she's an historian, and she looks at sort of the role of sugar in early sort of labor complaints. So she had a really interesting perspective on the subject. She's also researched food diplomacy in the past. And I think we're going to, we're going to put together that initial chunk for this re-release. So tune in if you want to hear more about Pad Thai robots. Is this the episode where we learned about fish lice for the first time? I think it is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This was the OG fish lice episode. (laughs) (laughs) The topic was sugar. (laughs) Yeah. It's just that's how interesting Lex is. So uh, everyone can tune in for this throwback and enjoy it. And I, I can promise you I have this is one of our earlier episodes. So my favorite thing about doing these encores is that I get to touch them up. So this is our our HD re-release, the edit, the the director's <laughs> second cut. <laughs> Enjoy, everyone. So Lex is a, an historian of food migration and labor, and uh, she's currently working toward a PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So I'm curious, um, now that you've been out of Toronto for a little while, is there like a food that you think of as quintessentially Toronto? I don't know if I think about it as like quintessentially Toronto, but because I'm not in a major city, there's not as many like yeah. street hot dog vendor things. Sure. There are a lot of food trucks mm. um, and there are food trucks that I wasn't expecting. Like there's a pandemonium donuts, um, <laughs> which apparently was founded, I think by alumni and they like stop and they're they're like on campus and they will sell until they run out of donuts and then they're just like okay we're done now Um, and they have a brick and mortar shop but they have like continued to use the food truck that's nice yeah i get to stay mobile yeah so i miss stationary street food and i like i don't i'm not i'm not excited that all toronto has to offer is hot dogs but i miss being able to see ubiquitous hot dog men at all intersections (laughs) yeah it's stuff like that 
Yeah, if I remember correctly, you were interested in food trucks for a little while, right? Yeah, I, yeah. so I started my MA thinking that I was going to write about street food and like legislation around street food because I was really mad that we only had hot dogs. And so I was like, I'm going to write a research project that finds out why we only have hot dogs. Uh, the answer is racism. Um, sure. <laughs> wait, what? It's like 1800s racism. Oh, yeah. Um, the reason that, I mean... Obviously, I'm being kind of flippant, but the reason that we have hot dogs basically only in Toronto is that when other ethnic minority groups that weren't Italian or Polish started making street food stands, there was a lot of like health and sanitation panic. And somehow hot dogs, especially because definitely the worst way to eat them is you can boil them. <laughs> um, people were like, yes, this is clean. <laughs> and like really what they meant is this is vaguely Germanic. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, so like cities like Chicago that have like a huge uh, Latino population have people walking around selling things from other cultures and that has somehow been more permissible. I mm. don't, I mean, Chicago has a reputation for being dirty, which I'm not sure is fair having not yet been there. But, mm. but yeah, like that's, that's one of the reasons why like Toronto and to a lesser extent, New York have only hot dogs. It's just like there was a racist health panic when <laughs> other people started making food on the street and then eventually city council just legislated and was like no you're literally only allowed to sell hot dogs and they have like the reason all those stands are like exactly the same is they have to conform to a set of like weird laws about mm. um and we just haven't bothered to change those like we like well the when i i guess like two or three years ago when i thought i was going to write this project on street food <laughs> is when people started being like it's very boring that we only have hot dogs <laughs> and they're like i also want to be able to pay 15 dollars for street salad and then we got those food trucks that are on saint george street mm. um at the like by the Batashu museum on campus yeah and those are all part of this like new effort by city council to diversify our street food except like they're diversifying it on like three toronto streets and only in a very it's a very toronto way. solution yeah. <laughs> yeah overpriced pilot on a few streets <laughs> yeah yeah by contrast um there's like a huge movement um around street vendor legalization in california mm. like they just made all street vending i think all street vending legal last year huh which solved a like weird loophole problem where police would impound people's street vending stuff oh, and then man. functionally extort them to get it back. Yeah. Um, but if you are, especially an undocumented migrant, that's often part of the many things that you're doing to make money. And so California, I guess, because undocumented uh, immigration is a much more pressing front page issue all the time, they had a lot of legislative push to change that. And last year they legalized street vending across the whole state. Wow. Um, and then I know New York is in the middle of, like, unionizing their street food workers, something like that. I know Professor Krishnendu Ray at NYU is doing a bunch of stuff on street food and is, like, if you follow him on Twitter, there's, like, a lot of, like, here's what's going on at the street food vendors meeting or, like, here's what's going on at the city hall meeting where mm -hmm. we, like, showed up with a bunch of vendors to tell them what it's actually like to be on the street vending. And so I know there's also a push in New York, but... Yeah, no, no push in Toronto. We're just, it's okay for us to have $15 Chinese food in a truck, I guess. <laughs> nobody, nobody valued walking on wheels. <laughs> Who knew hot dog stands were such a rabbit hole? Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's what, so that's what I started. I was like, I hate that we only have hot dogs. I'm going to write a master's thesis. Why do we only have hot dogs? And then it got really hard to dig the documents out. 
And I ended up instead finishing my MA writing about the like global history of food as a diplomatic tool. Mm, yeah. Um, and Isn't now that, that food thai, is like a pad thai robot. Yes. Yeah. The pad thai <laughs> robot was like a huge chunk of my footnotes. <laughs> the pad thai robot. Yeah. You have to explain what the pad thai robot is because I think it's amazing. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what that robot. is. Please explain it to me as if I don't know. <laughs> The Pad Thai robot is a robot made by the Thai government, which I'm sure has a more standardized name than the Pad Thai (laughs) robot. But um, yeah, it's a robot that is supposed to objectively taste and rank the quality of Pad Thai against this standard that the Thai government has deemed as what authentic Pad Thai tastes like. Wait, what? (laughs) I I have... So many questions. Yeah. So it it tastes and it measures like sourness and sweetness. And it's like, oh, well, like sourness is supposed to be a 52, but this one's a 56. So it's like kind of not authentic. Hang on. (laughs) Robots have tongues now? (laughs) I, you know, I don't really understand the engineering part of this robot, but... Does it work? So from what I understand, it measures, like, the chemical signature of the pad thai. And it can, like, scan for compounds. So it's not tasting the way you and I taste. But it is tasting in the sense that it, too, has a method of recognizing certain chemical compounds and matching them to things that it has tasted before. Mm. Um, And so they said it and they were like, you know... NaCl2 or whatever like (laughs) you're supposed to have this much of that if it's authentic and then that's what it's scanning for is like oh this has more or less of this thing that I thought okay so my next question is uh why um (laughs) well as I discovered in my MA project uh the this is like the most recent development in what I termed gastropolitics And there is some really cool research out of the University of Southern California's School of Public Diplomacy Mm -hmm. on the topic. Um, Sam Chapelsokol, I think, is the the big name. But yeah, basically, the Thai government, as a method of soft power strategy, was like, what if we got everyone really into Thai food? (laughs) And so... I mean, it worked. (laughs) In the last, like, 12 to 15 years, if you've noticed, uh, like, a proliferation of Thai restaurants, a lot of it is actually that. Like, it's Thai government-funded or Thai government-expedited or ameliorated culinary expansion so that people will like and or want to go to Thailand. I mean, I I really think that was a successful strategy. (laughs) Yeah. So do, do other countries try this too? I mean, yeah. So there are a couple of countries... The argument that I ran through in my MA was basically that this is a really old practice and this is just the newest development. Mm -hmm. So I sort of ran it through case studies. And the argument that I made is that the earliest version of soft power diplomacy using food is France standardizing its cuisine and doing things like creating the brigade system in kitchens. Okay. Um, And that that... What is the brigade system? That sounds like violent. So it's like you go to a fancy restaurant and there's like the sauce guy and the meat guy and the like vegetable guy. And like... I didn't, but I can imagine what that's like. (laughs) So yeah. So when your dish gets cooked in many fancy kitchens, there's like a dessert person and a sauce person and a Mm. meat person. And like you order, I don't know, like steak and asparagus. And it's actually like mosaic composed Mm. by a brigade of people in the kitchen and so like an order comes through for steak and asparagus and in many restaurants what happens is like the vegetable guy 
because it's usually a guy, uh, <laughs> cooks the asparagus and puts it, and then the, the like meat guy makes your steak, and then there is someone who's checking that the composition of your plate matches what they've decided plating looks like at the restaurant. Wow. That but sounds this is honestly French... less fun as a cook. You're just focusing on one thing. Yeah, and, and like, there's, like, a hierarchy, like, (laughs) if you, like, like, people don't often want to work in pastry and desserts, and it's, like, people do want to work in the, like, complicated meat slash starches section. Mm. Yeah, and so, this is all a French invention, and a lot of formal restaurant stuff is a French invention, and I argued that that was one way of becoming dominant, and so that's why you have, like, different styles of dining in the 17 and 1800s like you can dine a la russe which is where everything is put on the table and you take a little bit of it and really all of it is cold um (laughs) and then you can dine like a la francaise which is where everything comes out in courses and like it's composed by a kitchen brigade there's like a lot of this mixed in with like the history of the ritz carlton and the Mm. history of like hotel dining and like women getting to go out to restaurants for the first time right yeah women not allowed to go to restaurants for a while, there were very male spaces. Mm, interesting. And then women started going to tea houses. And then the, like, fancy lunch that people go to when they see a matinee show at the theater becomes, like, socially acceptable for men and their wives. And then Yeah, but huh, women wouldn't like, be able to go by themselves. They'd have to be escorted by a man, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, how, how would they know where to go? <laughs> Honestly. And, and also, they don't have pockets, so who's holding their money? <laughs> You have to bring your husband for his pockets. That's why pocket dresses are such an important invention. Uh, yeah, no, I I frequently, frequently will joke with people about the feminist importance of deep pockets. And I'm not talking about being wealthy. I'm just like, no, I need to be able to fit my cell phone in my pants. Like, this is a feminist crisis. So I argued that after that level of diplomacy, then things like making yourself a culinary destination a la Acapulco. Mm. Um, and like being like the place where people go and eat a bunch of stuff. And so I argued that Mexico in attempting to combat this like image as a place where you go and you get sick with Montezuma's revenge, that they sort of do the second wave of culinary Mm. diplomacy or gastro diplomacy by making themselves a destination where people want to go to that country to eat. And then the third wave of it is trying to get that by making your cuisine popular elsewhere than your country Mm -hmm. so that people will see cuisine as a gateway to want to visit your country so that wave thailand is doing it malaysia has a project Mm. um korea has a bunch of research institutes uh like the kimchi research institute nice um fun research institute (laughs) yeah and so you know those are all part of that wave and if you've noticed in the last like five to ten years unesco has been certifying cuisines as part of the or culinary events depending on what it is as Mm. part of the intangible heritage of the world okay part of the argument that i made is that like this is a push on the part of countries to get their culinary traditions recognized so that people will think they are something valuable to go see so that you don't just go to korea for a vacation you go to korea around the time of year that the ritual of kinjang is happening and you go and you see if you can, Mm -hmm. people making kimchi, and that's the thing you go for, in the same way that you would go to Brazil or Trinidad for carnival, or in the same way that you would go, like, to Japan for the cherry blossoms, countries are attempting to make their cuisine and culinary rituals, like, a thing that people travel to go see. And didn't, uh, I think I remember you telling me once that Canada tried this and just massively fucked it up? We are not really that good at... (laughs) Soft culinary diplomacy. 
You're Basically, telling me people don't want Tim Hortons? <laughs> <laughs> Basically, our culinary diplomacy strategy has just been like, hey guys, we have great raw materials. <laughs> so like, look at this beef. Way less hormones than America. <laughs> or like, Not berries. wrong, but also maybe not the most effective. <laughs> well, that's like the Alberta beef slogan It for a long time was eat Alberta beef. And then the mad cow crisis happened. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and then after the mad cow crisis abated, they were like, oh, we need a new slogan. And the new slogan they came up with was, eat Alberta beef again. <laughs> but then people were like, just reminds people, people were like, wait, why did I for a while? stop? <laughs> and then they would look up the mad cow scandal. And it was just like a terrible, but yeah, that's look, emblematic. Alberta is not great at branding. <laughs> it's an Albertan. <laughs> Yeah, but that that was an emblematic Canadian culinary diplomacy mm. move. Um, the things we've been most successful at are, like, alcohols and desserts. Mm. Like, everyone wants to eat a Nanaimo bar. Sure. People... Yeah, but, you, like, Nanaimo bars push themselves, really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have a whole desire to do a project to figure out why on earth there is coconut in that dessert. Because to <laughs> me, that's, like, that tells me a whole bunch of things that we are not talking about. But... Mm. Um, because, like, custard and chocolate, that's fine. We've had those for a long time. Why are why is there coconut? There's shredded coconut in this dessert, and no <laughs> one's talking about it. But, yeah, so Nanaimo bars push themselves. Ice wine and Crown Royal whiskey mm, yeah. are big exports. We argue with Vermont about the maple syrup. But, like, Canadian... But soon climate change, Vermont won't be able to go it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so Canadian cuisine, it's becoming more popular, but it's becoming more popular as a... In the same way that, like, the California cuisine of the 90s became popular, mm. not, like, as a cuisine, but as a lifestyle where you, like, eat naturally sourced things. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's our best, that's our best go so far, is, like, guys, it's really fresh. That's what we've got. Oh, we just pulled it out of the ground and or sea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The salmon. Our salmon is less creepy. I looked up sea lice the other day, and now I'm, like, afraid of fish <laughs> sure. because it turns out a lot of fish have sea lice and sea lice are disgusting what is sea lice they're lice that fish get but they don't have hair they they eat the fish flesh oh no so if you ever watch those like very scary shows that make you grateful that fishermen exist like deadliest catch or whatever sometimes you'll see them pull up nets and the nets are just like bones and a lot of the time it's because the fish got eaten Oh my god. By like sea lice just like breed and eat the fish to death, like a weird parasite. It's gross. If you Google it, it'll make you sad and grossed out, and they're like gray and weird, and they <laughs> happen a lot. And like now, now I'm like, how do I know that this sustainably raised in a farm fish didn't have sea lice? Because a lot of the time they do. Mm, is it like a fish farming thing or they are existent in the wild, but it happens more often to farmed fish because they're like all yeah. squished in one place. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's not part of the Canadian diplomacy effort. We're not advertising that fish have sea lice, and I hope most of ours don't. <laughs> Eat salmon again. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we've been through a few sort of waves of your intellectual interest. So maybe you could tell me like where you are now, what's your current project as you're working on? Yeah, Um. so I hear that your eventual dissertation project changes a lot by the time mm -hmm. you've actually gone to the archives, but... um. Maybe maybe a good interjection point is the, the article that I'm going to be trying to write next semester. So I am working broadly in the field of like anti-imperial history, 
with a specific interest in indentured Indian indentured laborers in the British Empire, especially with an interest in sort of like surfacing women's stories, um, because so often the documents that we have to discuss Indian indenture are legal documents, and they're often recorded by British officials. They tend to be about and written by men. Um, and then when women do surface in the story, it's uh, often for really upsetting reasons. Like, it's like, oh, we're at a murder trial. Oh, no. And this woman is dead. So I guess we'll just all talk about how that happened. And so as a consequence of that, I think the story is a little skewed. And the story is that, like, a bunch of single male migrants left India. They did work in various kinds of agricultural and mining labor. And this is, like, India's like ignored diaspora because of the shame around indenture um, and around the conditions that people live through. But the truth is that actually a ton of women also indentured um, and their stories are just less written. And so that's what I came into grad school with an interest in. And as of next semester, I'm working on a project um, specifically that looks at, I found a set of complaints made by laborers to the protector of Indian immigrants, which is an invented position that is supposed to sort of be a stopgap measure against all these human rights abuses that are happening right. on the plantations. I have 17 complaints and 14 are by men and three are by women. And I'm sort of looking at these complaints and what they are saying is happening in contrast with what the protector of immigrants writes home in his annual reports so that I can sort of ask questions about what was life actually like on these plantations why did people complain about the things they complained about? Why are other things that are definitely happening left out of complaints? What does that tell us about social life on these plantations? And trying to especially focus on, you know, what does the silence or absence of women's voices in these documents tell us about what women's roles were like or what women's social life was like on these plantations? Um, so food is like a ever-present but more backgrounded thing in this set of studies that I'm doing because the context of all of this labor in the vast majority of places that Indian indentured laborers went is sugar. They are right. they yeah. are almost all farming sugar cane and harvesting sugar cane. So that's that's where food and also my work are at right now. Hey, future Kyla here. At this point in the conversation, we began our discussion on sugar. So for the rest of that chat, you can check our feed for our episode on sugar. Lex also asked me to correct her French dining comment. She mixed up a la russe and a la française. So when listening to her explanation on those terms, know that she got them backwards and that as an academic who prides herself on accuracy, she's very sorry. You can delete that angry tweet you were writing. <laughs> lot about the history of sugar production but from what i've heard it's like one of those industries that is really heavily tied to slavery and various human rights abuses and i mean i for this episode i've looked a little bit into the present day and spoiler alert it hasn't changed all that much but i don't, I don't know if you could tell us a little bit more about the history of sugar if you yeah. yeah. Um, so I haven't read it in a while. I Actually, I'll probably be revisiting it over the break. But the most famous and I think like most digestible history of what this industry is like is Sidney Mintz's Sweetness and Power, okay. um, which is, first of all, an amazing title um, and is also very lyrically written. But Mintz was an anthropologist of the Caribbean, and he's considered one of the sort of like founders of food history because this book is so important to most food historians. Um, it's very lyrical. 
but it's also very history from the bottom up, which is why I appreciate it. Um, his grounding in actually working with laborers in sugar fields means that that's where his questions all start is in the fields with these workers. And he sort of looks outwards to try and ask, why has sugar been so popular forever? Because apparently, with notable exception of maybe two or three decades, sugar production and consumption has only ever gone up. Really? So, I mean, and that doesn't surprise me anymore, and looking at a modern really North tasty. American <laughs> diet. Um, but yeah, so sugar, Mince is writing about sugar production, and he notes a couple of things. Um, one, that it, but yeah, it is super tied to slavery. As a tropical agricultural product, it ends up... I think the plant is originally from New Guinea. Okay. And then it's first processed in India in like the early 1000s or something like that. And then gradually it becomes more and more important. And then it becomes a commodity crop during the like age of high imperialism. And it especially becomes prominent across what end up being British colonies. And so it is very tied to slavery, especially because it is very tied to the Caribbean and, um, and Brazil. And so it's a crop where people are in, like, a lot of danger all the time where they're working with it. It requires harvesting with dangerous implements, like people are using machetes or cutlasses to harvest it. Um, And then it has to be ground and it has to be boiled. And so this is a crop where it's like there are sharp things and fiery things and heavy things. And that's the stuff. Um, and then sugarcane fields themselves are really dangerous. Some of the kinds of sugarcane that exist can be like 15 feet tall mm. when they're ready to harvest. And that means you're functionally hacking a jungle down every time you harvest a sugar crop. And that means there are like snakes and who knows what else. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it ends up vastly modifying the landscape in the places where it's harvested and then being really dangerous to harvest the whole time. Um, and that means that colonial overseers are not really interested in harvesting it themselves and they're interested in people they don't consider people doing this work because they consider them expendable and so it doesn't matter if they get bit by a snake or if they like are overworked and work an 18 hour day and then have to wake up the next day and do it again because they're probably not going to pay them and they're fine with them being in danger yeah spoiler alert that is still true um (laughs) yes (laughs) but But yeah, so sugar mince goes through that portion of explaining that the danger of harvesting sugar, while it's not readily apparent, is connected to why so many people of color end up harvesting sugar. And then um, mince also connects this to the rise of industrial capitalism in Europe and looks at the demand side of things and Mm -hmm. is like, if you're a poor laborer and you can't really afford food and it's like, I don't know, 1820 and you're hungry... Sugar is a really calorie efficient fuel that will dull your hunger a little bit and sort of power you through. And so he connects not just the rise of tea and coffee, both of which he's like, they're much better if you put sugar in them. And then workers, especially he uses England as a case study, like if you have afternoon tea, he connects that as an institution, not to like fancy afternoon tea at hotels, but to people coming home and they're like, okay, I can afford a piece of bread and some sort of something before I go back out to work. And that something ends up being tea or coffee with sugar in it. And then he tracks that and is like, okay, well, once it's incorporated in your diet that way, then things like jams and preserves and then cakes and then candy bars. And then all of those things become popular as really like high calorie 
but small things. And so that imbricates the story of sugar with the story of chocolate and the story of all the other sort of like tasty treats that are growing all in colonial spaces and they're all tropical crops. Yeah. So yeah, I guess the history of sugar is like, it has its own history, but it, that history is impossibly connected to like, you can't separate it out from all the things we put sugar into in, I imagine if we wrote a history of corn now, yeah, that the like modern history of corn would do the same thing. That's so interesting because I I had read a little bit about sort of like the very quick ascendancy of sugar, um, which already sort of made me think it's so ubiquitous now that I had kind of imagined it was something that like all societies were using for a very long time. But in my sort of imagination of it, I imagined it sort of being something that the elite primarily consumed and then sort of with like the mass consumption movement, it got one to everybody. But from what you're saying is almost sort of the opposite, that it was this kind of like relatively cheap additive that you could put into food if you can't afford a lot. It starts out being an elite thing, but I think the elite period of sugar is much earlier than I expected it to be. So like, if you think about the sort of like Tudor era or medieval and Renaissance periods, um, all of those sort of like weird decorative cakes where it's like, aha, it's a cake, but it's also a pheasant. Um, (laughs) Those are all covered in sugar in like a gross way that I don't want at dinner. Sure. (laughs) Um, And that is the period at which sugar is so expensive that only the elites are eating it. And then when you get towards sort of the industrial era, sugar is still expensive. And so you can't have a lot of it, but it is cheap enough that it can be like a sort of high calorie addition to people's diets who are poor. And it's cheaper when you're triaging than buying other whole foods. So maybe it's not cheap, but you can afford more sugar than you can apples and peaches and bread. And and the labor of putting sugar into something that's already made is easier. So whether or not it's available to everyone, it ends up being a cost-effective addition or substitute for things that otherwise would take you a lot of labor to eat. And so, yeah, I was really surprised to find that sugar's history is much more much more involved with mass consumption earlier than I thought it would be. Like, it's like by the time the 1800s are rolling around, Europeans are just eating more and more and more sugar. Um, Mintz has some like really fantastic statistics where I think it's by like the early 1900s, the like average per person consumption is something crazy, like 40 grams. Wow. Where it's like, wow, like at this period of time, I wouldn't have expected that. Yeah, I actually don't know how much sugar we consume in a day. I just assume it's way too much. I'm I'm pretty sure that it's more than 50 grams now on average in, in America. Yeah, it's got to be. Um, I mean, it's in everything. Yes. <laughs> so I just Googled average sugar intake Canada, and the top result is from sugar.ca. So I don't know how trustworthy a source that is, but according this to dietary like intake... one, two, three or whatever. <laughs> Surprisingly authentic. According to... According to dietary intake surveys from the Canadian Community Health Survey, or CCHS 2015, consumption of total sugars in Canada was 101 grams for children aged 2 to 8, 115 grams for children aged 9 to 18, and 85 grams for adults, which demonstrates a reduction of 3, 13, and 8 grams, respectively, compared to 2004. So that sounds like a lot. Yes. Yeah, it's (laughs) doubled or 
tripled depending on the age group. I'm just going to double check one more source because that sounds like a lot. Give me one second. I would not be surprised. People <laughs> drink half of their calories now. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know what? For this, ch- so we were we're gonna. I think we're gonna talk about challenges that we did, but I wasn't even sure that I would be able to be on this recording. So, like five days ago, I, I panicked <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I'll just stop eating sugar for the next five days, no problem." Except that I went to Subway twice, and so I looked up how much sugar is in like Subway bread, my bread of choice, and how much is in my sauce of choice. And just from a foot-long Subway sandwich, I was consuming like almost, I think, 30 grams of sugar. So not to call out Subway, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Subway, my steady friend. (laughs) So I'm just on uh, globalnews.ca and they, they give an example, like a tablespoon of ketchup, for example, has... Uh, a teaspoon worth of sugar in it and a can of baked beans can have as much as 14 teaspoons of sugar so it's a lot (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean one of the things that people forget about sugar is that it's a preservative Mm -hmm. and so like I, i think about this the most when i think about christmas candy you know those like strange little jellies and they're like coated in like very crystalline sugar on the outside well it's like yeah, those are a super old form of candy, and they're made that way because it, like, you know, when you don't have pectin and you're making jellied things, well, how do you preserve it? You put a bunch of sugar in it. Sure. And so jam works that way, too. Um, you can make jam that has a pretty okay shelf life with no pectin in it, but it's got, like, a buttload of <laughs> So I'll definitely post some information about what our sugar intake is, but it's really, it looks like it's kind of hard to find out the answer. So I think the answer that I gave originally is going to be as close as we get. And yeah, if you want, Kristen, we can move on to the challenges now. I think you did some interesting stuff. Well, let's maybe start with you because you, you sort of talked a little bit about it already. I mean, I basically talked about the whole thing, I think. (laughs) I I tried not to have sugar at all for five days. I'm going to keep it going. I want to do a solid two weeks to make the challenge feel like it was authentic. And then I'll post about it afterwards because obviously I just didn't have time. But yeah, basically I was trying not to eat sugar and then I went to Subway and I ended up having heaps of sugar. And even with just that going on, I still feel like I may be going through a bit of sugar withdrawal. I had to have a teaspoon of honey the other day because I was just having such bad cravings. <laughs> so I'm just imagining you like shaking and like getting the honey. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that's not far off because I don't drink coffee. I have a lot of tea uh, for my caffeine intake, but when I'm really tired and I'm struggling, which this December, which is when we're recording this episode, which is, I imagine, why Lex is back in Toronto with you, visiting her family, maybe. Yep. So this month <laughs> in particular, I've been really busy. And when I get really busy and I'm tired and I don't have time to make proper food, sometimes instead of what a normal person would do, would like have extra coffee, what I'll do is I'll just like up my sugar intake to keep myself going. And so, yeah, I feel like maybe cutting it out was that's very industrial era factory worker of you. <laughs> very Dickensian. Yeah, so <laughs> so that's that's kind of what I've been doing and I am feeling the pinch. <laughs> 
Kristen's challenge this week was a lot more interesting than mine. So you sent me a picture of what you <laughs> she made. Says without knowing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It looked really good. You sent me a photo. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was, uh, I'll partially, I decided to make something with fair trade sugar, which doubles as a thank you for interviewing with us. Uh, oh, yeah. thank, thank you. Thank you for being you. on the podcast. So I started my challenge by basically just looking at all of the processed food items that I have in my fridge or pantry. And I was actually surprised there wasn't as many items that had processed sugar as I would have thought. But yeah, I did have the gelato <laughs> that was originally in that container um, had sugar in it, of course. And then there were some sugar in in these like veggie pot stickers that I eat. And I did not expect that, but probably should have. Uh, and then strawberry jam, of course. And then a few, just a few sauces, basically, was the other stuff. And uh, essentially, the the only one that was certified for anything at all was an organic seal. Otherwise, nothing. It was just regular sugar. And so, I mean, we'll talk about labor in the sugar industry, but almost certainly that means, in the best case, poverty level wages, and in the worst case, just straight out like slavery and child labor. So it's not great. So, so I also tried to do sort of like a lighter version of what Kyla was doing. I was just trying not to buy anything like snacks and things like that that had sugar. I did not look into like actual restaurant foods or anything like that, even though I'm sure they all have sugar in them. But I found it like it's actually really hard to find fair trade certified sugar um, items. I went through like a, a sort of convenience store here and found not a single thing. And then eventually I went to like the, there's like a, a local organic grocery store called Big Carrot in Toronto. So I went there and I was like, surely they'll have fair trade. And they, they did. They had one item um, or one sort of brand that had a bunch of chocolate bark items that were all fair trade. So do fair trade certified items have to have all the ingredients be fair trade or is it just no. the dominant thing? I mean, we're going to have to do a whole episode on fair trade because it was very complicated. But um, so, yeah, fair trade, there's um, there's sort of two different buckets. So you can have fair trade certified, which means that there are certain standards that a company would need to adhere to for either the product or the supply chain. And then that gets sort of verified by a third party. And then there's fair trade member. And that essentially just means that you have like, small producers or retailers or whatever that pay into a membership for a fair trade organization. And so they do have to adhere to the values in order to be members, but there's not sort of like that audit process. So like could be a little bit less rigorous, I suppose. Um, although I will say, so in the Christmas episode that we'll have released by the time this podcast comes out, we talk about 10,000 Villages, it's a fair trade shop in Canada, and it is a member fair trade organization. So they have a few items that are fair trade certified, but most of the stuff is, is just with companies that are fair trade membership. But I think the idea is that you're part of a movement and that that trust is built in that way. So you may not necessarily need the certification process. But to answer your question more directly, a lot of the times it'll just be one ingredient that is fair trade certified or a few. The product that I ended up buying, it had basically everything except for the salt was organic. 
And then there were, I think, the chocolate. Let me so see if I can. So, what Kristen is describing, I believe, is chocolate peppermint bark. Is that what you ended up buying? No, it's um. So it's a chocolate hazelnut and crispy rice bark. I thought you made it from scratch, and I'm really disappointed now. No, no, this was a different. I also made made a thing with fair trade sugar. Yes, sweet. Okay, sorry, sorry for doubting you. <laughs> That's what that is. Um, is the thing I made. You, you actually, I, I didn't particularly like this chocolate bark, so it's, this is very good. What I made for you, but the the bark that I bought, I don't love. So I won't say the brand because I didn't like it that much. But they had, um, yeah, like chocolate, cocoa butter, cane sugar, and vanilla. Those were all fair trade. And then almost everything was organic. And you were saying that it's really hard to just, to buy anything really. Like you you can only get one or two items. Is it because sugar is just so ubiquitous that nobody cares and nobody's shopping for it? Or like, why, why is it that all of our sugar is evil and we don't have a lot of options? Well, I think it actually is more about fair trade. Um, I mean, there's probably a little bit of both that like you need, you need sugar to be cheap, I think. And yeah. But uh, on the other hand, there's just isn't a lot of fair trade. It's one of the hardest to find labels when you're like looking in a grocery store, at least from my personal experience, unless you're looking for like coffee or tea where there tends to be a lot. So is there is the only way to not be evil when consuming sugar? Is is it just to not consume sugar? Well, in my experience, one of the things that happened as I learned about the history of sugar is, so actually my introduction to sugar truly is a testament to the fact that you should follow your gut instinct and then you would start your graduate degree like 1500 years sooner with the topic (laughs) that you were going to end up with anyway. Um, Because when I was in my freshman year of undergrad, I was in a geography course, yeah, at um, the University of Toronto called Food, Environments, and People. And our end of semester project was you had to pick a food item and try and follow its like geographic chain talking about the labor conditions along the way. Mm. And I was like, cool, I'll do sugar because there's tons of writing about sugar and this will be fine. And the actual truth of the matter was that it was not fine and I couldn't find anything because it's obscured. And I thought that the solution when I found out about the terrible labor history in tropical sugar would be to start eating sugar made from sugar beets. And I was like, great. Canada, we have labor laws. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> but then <laughs> I know what you found. <laughs> I couldn't find which sugar was sugar beets mm. and which sugar was sugar cane. Oh, there is a trick for Canada. I found that out. Although we'll talk about sugar beet production and its history in Canada. <laughs> but um, if you buy Rogers sugar that has a black stamp that says 22 at the beginning, that is Alberta grown sugar beet. Like, huh, 80% of Canada's sugar beet production is just from Alberta. There's another 20% that's grown in Ontario, but that all goes to Michigan where it gets refined there. It's all to do with trade laws. Like, um, there are high tariffs on, I think, on both sides for um, importing refined sugar. But if you're exporting sugar beets, the tariffs aren't high. So it's like, you can grow sugar beets and export them as a Canadian producer, and that's fine. But if you were trying to export sugar, like, it just wouldn't happen. I didn't even know about that and didn't know there was a brand. And so when I did this mm-hmm. project, I guess, seven or eight years ago, I was, like, 
let's find out what's in Red Path Sugar. And then the answer was, they will not let you find out where their (laughs) sugar is from. Um, It's from a bunch of places. And all of this was just because I grew up uh, having seen the Red Path Sugar Factory on the harbor front and having gone there because I like, you know, my aunt and uncle would take us and there's the cool grocery store that's now a fancy Loblaws. And they're like, we'll go to the fancy Loblaws and we'll go walk on the harbor front. And there's all these nice things. And now even I, like my cousin who, it used to be me and my aunt and my uncle and my cousin who would go on most of these outings. And like, she now lives in a apartment with a view of the Red Path Sugar Factory. And she sees the boats emptying and unloading like tankers worth of yeah. sugar. It's and it's funny. all sugar cane, like, yeah. um, at, at least from my, I think, because uh, there's only one sugar beet processing facility, because I guess the processing process, the process is different, slightly different. Uh, sugar beets are slightly, slightly different from sugar cane chemically, which means that they only need to sort of be processed once, um, which also means you can't really produce brown sugar from it, which I think is kind of interesting. But um, so you have to have different refineries for them. And there's just one refinery for sugar beets in Canada, and it's in Tabor, Alberta. And then there are three refineries, maybe more, because I think there's one in Belleville too. But they're basically one or two in Ontario, then there's one in Montreal, and there's one in Vancouver. And they're all sugar cane, other than the one in Alberta. And I assume they're all in deep water ports. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, we can't grow sugar cane. (laughs) Yeah. As a plug for anyone who's super invested in seeing the inner workings of this whole sugar story and also is in or lives in the Toronto area, um, I discovered it at the Doors Wide Open Festival in May, but certainly at Doors Wide Open, Red Path opens the big, like, room, storehouse, I don't know what to call (laughs) it, where all the sugar is, Mm. and you can, like, go into that room, and it's like a football field long, big warehouse looking building that is full floor to ceiling with like mounds of sugar. And that's like literally just being dumped out of the boats into that building. And it gets scooped up by like things that I associate with doing construction, like whatever those little scooper vehicles are. And like, I was like, why there's a backhoe digging piles of sugar (laughs) and putting it in trucks Um, But they also... I feel like that's every child's dream, right? (laughs) It's gotta be. And then year-round, there is the Red Path Sugar Museum, which, like, has a bunch of very euphemistic captions and pictures of (laughs) sugar barons, and you can go, and they're like, the workers. I'm like, I think you mean slaves. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So... Maybe it's now it's time to talk about the baggage that I found with Canadian sugar beets. Because I thought, you know, sugar beets, that seems kind of nice. <laughs> <laughs> I saw this I saw this how it's made video and it was like this British farmer, it was all mechanized, it was like this is great. It doesn't seem like it's going to have a lot of labor abuses. The factory seems really efficient. Bad. I was not <laughs> I was not correct. Um, And actually, it may be the case that, like, labor today in the sugar beet industry in Canada, I suspect it's relatively good because it is mostly mechanized. But that was sort of like a recent development. So in the history of Canadian sugar beet production, there are two massive shames. Uh, The first one is Japanese internment. 
Oh. Yeah, so for those that may not know about this, during World War II, about 12,000 Canadian, Japanese Canadians were sent to work um, to internment camps or to work in various places. Um, and one of the places that they ended up going was to sugar beet farms in Alberta and Manitoba. Yeah. So basically at the time, there aren't these big machines. So harvesting sugar beets is actually pretty labor intensive. And so um, about 4,000 ended up going there. And uh, it's just really terrible working conditions. And, uh, you know, of course, these people are sort of displaced from like, mostly living in British Columbia. So so they, they're sort of moved all their property's gone and they end up working long hours for a little pay on these sugar beet farms. I wasn't specifically able to find the link, but Rogers Sugar on their website talks about how they got involved in beet sugar processing in Alberta in the thirties. So I have to imagine because we don't have, we've never had that many sugar refineries. So I have to imagine that Rogers then is processing sugar that is coming from interned Japanese Canadians. So that's bad. The second one that we might also have expected is that Canadian sugar beets were farmed by basically bonded labor from indigenous people. And this was like way more recent than I would have thought, you know, it only ended in the 1980s, basically. Yeah, it's not great. Whoa, what? Well, how, how did they get into the bonded labor? So essentially, it, so it was, um, northern Métis communities on the prairies. And so they're living on reserves and in a lot of cases didn't have sort of a lot of employment opportunity, opportunities. So basically, they'd be recruited by farmers to help out with the harvest in the summer. And uh, the Department of Indian Affairs was basically helping these farmers to like coerce people because they'd cut um, individuals off of social assistance if they wouldn't go down to be on these farms. Um, And they also would take children away. Uh, So people that don't have a lot of employment prospects need money, sort of really depend on social assistance are then being pushed by the government to go work on these farms, um, farming sugar beets and to bring their children with them. And if they don't go, then the Department of Indian Affairs takes their children away. And if they do go, sometimes the Department of Indian Affairs takes their children away. So, uh, yeah, shit's fun. And then um, is that, so I assume the kids were being sent to residential schools in that case. Yeah, so I was thinking about this because like residential schools not shut down yet. It, it must have been that at least for some kids, they're going to residential schools throughout the year. They come back to be with their families and then they're working on these sugar farms all summer. So, anyway. Fuck. Yeah, and there's there's documentation. Lex, that is that something you know about? Team? I had no idea about this yeah. at all. Um, no. Although, I will say that the idea of bonded or indentured labor is not a novel sugar industry innovation. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it doesn't entirely surprise me and I can I can sort of see those spider web tendrils of mm-hmm. how different scholars work on different parts of the labor regime connect to that but yeah that I had no idea about Canadian sugar especially when I looked into it I imagined it as a as being one of two things like I was like okay what I'm going to find is either 
this is a racist way to not buy brown people sugar. Or this is a racist way to pretend you're a benevolent savior who refuses to buy brown people sugar. (laughs) And it, lo and behold, turns out that it's just different shades of people of color. (laughs) Yes, very much so. Yeah, and I'll just also say that, like, so I think both of these stories are coming to light in the last few years, mostly because survivors are talking now, right? So with the Japanese-Canadian internment, there are these art exhibits that have been starting to go up in memory of this sort of history. And in terms of the sort of Indigenous experience, it's people that are finally feeling comfortable to actually come forward um, that experienced it at the time. But it's really terrible. Like, they're working 12 to 14-hour day shifts, are either not being provided housing at all, so they're, like, sleeping in their cars, or they're being provided with, like, tents, basically. They also were just subject to, like, constant racism. One story that I was reading, there was, like, a person who was chased around by the locals with, like, bats. Just, (sighs) yeah. Because if you're already making people work for basically no money, why not also just be horrible to them? You know, I don't know. Anyway, so I'm not actually sure what labor conditions are like on sugar beet farms today, because when you Google it, it's this sort of historical stuff that comes up. I was able to find that most Canadian sugar refineries are unionized. So even if the the sugarcane production, it's certainly terrible. The refining itself, it's probably fine. Like the three or four hundred employees that are working to make Canadian sugar once it already gets to the refinery. So I don't know. So what I understand from the historical point of view, I know that you feel pretty confident on a lot of the research you did, but I think some of it is conjecture because there's just not a lot of information, like the Rogers being connected to the internment camps. You couldn't find actual uh, facts on that? I couldn't find the specific sentence on it, but there's only been like one sugar refinery in Alberta pretty much ever. And I do know that Rogers started one of the 30s. So I feel pretty confident saying that. So we are connecting the dots on that one. And then for the residential schools, that's another one where we couldn't, we're not quoting anything, but we know that residential schools were a thing in the 80s. And so were the sugar beet farms. So it's another dot that we're kind of just connecting. Yeah, I don't specifically know that these same kids are going to residential schools. I just imagine that that must have happened in at least a few cases. If anyone has any more information on that, I am actually super curious about sugar farming connected to residential schools. <laughs> ah, Canadian history. So <laughs> yeah, the 1980s, though, that's when it stopped. The thing that gets me the most is in 1975... This Winnipeg newspaper is like, we did this investigative journalism. This is really fucked up. We need to stop. And nobody did anything for like the next decade, half decade. I mean, like indigenous Canadians themselves started to collectively organize. And so that's a slow process, right? But ultimately, the, the practice ends up stopping, not because of something government does, not because farmers think, oh, this isn't right, but because we get farming machines and ultimately, that's less trouble. Ah! <laughs> yeah, I think it reflects like the modern day dilemma with sugar, though, right? Is it a huge cop out to buy Canadian beet sugar 
which is not subject to the same labor issues as cane sugar, but it is sort of taking money away from what could otherwise be helping communities around the world. And yeah, just being racist by pretending to be more moral. I don't know. It's interesting to me, especially because this dilemma also really depends on our ideas of the racial identities of a bunch of former colonies. So for example, uh, a ton of sugar is produced in the Dominican Republic, mm. like just a wild amount of the land in the Dominican Republic is uh, is dedicated to cane sugar farming. And those cane sugar farms are owned by five or six Dominican families, but they are mostly staffed by, I guess, and it's not, they're not even treated well enough to say that it's staffed by, but those plantations, because I think they still basically are plantations, are worked by primarily Haitian laborers, mm. many of whom have crossed the border with little to no protection because of the poor relations between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Um, and there is a really, really strong racial element to the reason that that is divided that way and that that is um, not least of which reason being the way international powers treated Haiti after its independence. Haitian laborers are considered black and Dominican owners of these plantations are largely considered if not white, then white adjacent, because they are often through either their own construction of their identity or through other people's construction of their identity linked more to Spanish ancestors than to uh, mixed race ancestors or to black ancestors that they share with Haitians on the island. Um, right. Yeah. And so like the question of, do I buy this cane sugar or not? Like it can be a question of, am I really taking money away from a country like Haiti or the Dominican Republic? But the answer is like, well, who are you taking that money away from? Like yeah. you are probably taking it away from the six richest families on the Dominican Republic side of the Island who get a lot of, but not all of the same benefits as uh, people in spaces we don't associate with sugar like Canada and Canadian farmers may be higher up the racial hierarchy chain, but may be less wealthy than the six families who run these sugar plantations. And then when I buy cane sugar, no matter how hard I try, basically none of that money is being given to the Haitian laborers that are actually cutting it down, processing it, driving it to the processing facilities. Um, and there's no real labor protections for those people. And so this, this question of like, what is the least racist sugar? Um, <laughs> is actually like just, imp I think it's, it's not impossible. corn syrup. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, I find it functionally impossible, but obviously I find it functionally impossible because it's embedded in a bunch of colonial ideology that hasn't gone anywhere. Yeah. Really. Yeah, I suppose fair trade seems like it's kind of the best you can do. I don't know. I don't know, because uh, I think when I look at cane sugar production, I also, I'm like, it's impossible to get away from the fact of what we were just talking about with unions, where it's like, of course, in my eyes, the the processing chain of sugar is constructed that way, because it, the extractive labor-intensive part of the process is harvesting the natural or raw materials in a tropical climate by people of color primarily. And then in the, you know, possibly ethnically diverse, but probably slightly more white environment in Canada where the labor is unionized, that's the labor of like added value where you process this yeah. thing 
that was made very cheaply elsewhere in the world in a Western space and then sell it for much more than it costs you. And so I also don't find it that surprising because that is literally exactly the model of sugar consumption that was happening in the 1800s yes. when it got popular. And so sometimes this question of fair trade seems a lot to me like a certification for a change that didn't happen at all. Yeah. Although like to be fair to fair traders, their their whole idea is we need to be compensating the people at the point of extraction fairly, you know? And I'm sure even fair trade prices are maybe not fair. I don't know. But at least they're, well, first of all, at least they're above the legal minimum wages in those countries, which are not adequate to make a living. There's this sustainability label called Bon Sucro. And they basically, they have some human rights elements. So they're better than not certifying. One of their rules is that you have to pay the legal minimum wage, which it just seems like that should be the floor, <laughs> not something that you specifically get a certification for. But as we know in sugar, um, there's a lot of like bonded and forced labor and exploitation of other kinds. But yeah, even with that level in places like Bolivia, the minimum wage is so low that these people still like are living in pretty extreme poverty, even if they're getting a rate that Bon Sucro considers to be a decent human rights standard, I guess. I think it's also important to ask um, what role sugar is playing as a sweetener. Um, mm -hmm. I know both of you, Kyla was saying that she like reached for a spoon of honey during her challenge. And I think one of the things that has been such a successful and nefarious part of sugar's history is that it is so ubiquitous that we think of it as the obvious answer for sweetener, when historically and culturally, that's mostly not the case for a lot of people in the world. Um, and when I think of like really old fashioned foods like applesauce, like that's what it was like to eat sweet stuff if you were a person who couldn't afford sugar. And so in some places, like when I see someone selling jaggery in an Indian grocery store, that makes sense to me because that is a like less valued and less refined form of sugar. What that is, is jaggery? It's, uh, it's, I think it's kind of like the unprocessed -y bits mm. of sugar at the first stage of refining. It's a very common sweetener in Indian food, um, which makes sense because India is the first place that we know of that refined sugar. And so when I see people in Indian grocery stores selling jaggery, that makes sense to me. And I'm like, well, regardless of where this was produced, this like fits. But then for example, if I go to David's Tea and they offer you the option of whether you want sugar or honey, or now there's a lot of options for, do you want agave syrup? And I'm like, yeah. well, like, great. It's not sugar, but also like hot take, maybe the monocrop industry of agave is not a great move <laughs> for us to get into, to get away from sugar. Like I was like, ah, uh, I think everyone likes tequila and mezcal, but also there's some problems. <laughs> and so a lot of the replacement things that people have come up with are things that if I'm not sketched out by the labor practices, I'm sketched out by some other part. <laughs> and I like, I don't like absent just starting an apiary in your backyard with your own bees. I don't like, what is the option? Except like, unless you live in Quebec and you can tap a tree, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's the thing, right? Is I'm like, I guess maple syrup is the most ethical sweetener. <laughs> like, is that even true? Or it could be things like, yeah, all there is associated with maple syrup that I know of is uh, like, corrupt Quebec cartels and that's okay <laughs> <laughs> and maple syrup heists don't forget those oh yeah 
Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, to me, the story of sugar is like everything people try and replace sugar with does things that I'm like, oh yes, you borrowed this from sugar. <laughs> and so when it's like, ah, oh, well, we found sugar beets. Just kidding. There was also bonded labor. Yes. I'm like, well, of course there was, because if anything, this feels like the story of sweeteners at this point. And I mean, I don't really like, I don't like industrial sweeteners at all. And so I don't know what the history of aspartame or stevia is, but I'm imagining. Stevia that- was biopiracy. <laughs> Cool. Yeah, I was like, I'm imagining it's not better. (laughs) Yeah, um, actually, I didn't find anything about any of the other artificial sweeteners. But um, yeah, a lot of people are starting to turn to artificial sweeteners, both for health reasons and because they're sketched out about sugarcane, which, I mean, I don't know about any of the other artificial sweeteners, but for stevia, at least, it's not great. So it's a plant that's native to... Paraguay and like a small piece of Brazil as well. There's um, a group of indigenous peoples called the Guarani. I may be mispronouncing that, but they traditionally had used it for like years and years and years to sweeten medicine, to sweeten teas, things like that. Basically in the late 1800s, like Western science is like, oh, hey, this is a sweetener, you know? So now we know this, (laughs) we're white and we can validate this knowledge now. Um, so it starts to sort of grow. Um, it actually st- started growing in India and China first because there was this whole question about whether it was carcinogenic for a while in the West. And so eventually it does hit Western markets. So now there's this sort of complicated regulatory process that happened that because there was this concern about it being a carcinogen, the stevia lobby pushed for like a product of processed stevia leaves called stevial glycosides. So that has approval. So you can sell that in like the States and the EU, but you can't buy stevia leaves because they haven't gone through this approval process because like there's no big stevia leaf lobby. So like for indigenous smallholders, you can't sell it directly to the States or to the EU, or I also assume Canada. So you have to go through these like few stevial glycoside producers who then sell it at like a huge markup. So it's become this whole problem uh, because the Guarani, first of all, the only benefit they've received so far is like the small amount of labor that they get as smallholder farmers selling these stevia leaves, which they are not paid fairly for. But secondly, these like stevial glycoside companies are now in this race to create synthetic stevial glycosides. And so soon there will be no work for the like traditional holders of this knowledge and all of the profit will be just held in these like stevia companies, basically. So it sounds, sounds to me, Kristen, like the solution is the next time I'm craving a sugar hit, I should reach for an apple, except that sucks because <laughs> as you know, from our Christmas episode. Although I don't I know make... how, how apple farming works, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, shit. But I was going to say, <laughs> as you know from our Christmas episode, I make hella good cookies. Uh, <laughs> and it's hard to bake. <laughs> if my... they don't sit in a box for three weeks. Shade. All right. <laughs> the crunchiest cookie I've ever eaten. <laughs> so, so like, it's it sucks because, like, one of my favorite things to do for somebody is to bake cookies. But I'll be honest, my cookie recipe is 90% sugar. It's like, it's like white sugar mixed with brown sugar with, like, a dollop of flour. And 
it's like the solution would obviously be to just stop eating sugar and have fruit instead, but that is boring and nobody's going to do it. Um, so I guess the next solution would be to um, cancel capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing, Kyla, is that like it's just impossible to replace this taste. And this is a thing that Sidney Mintz talks about a lot in his book where he's like, trying to figure out why why is this so popular like fruits are nice they are like, nice <laughs> why sugar and the answer that he comes to is that it's one of the only things we eat as humans that is like an elemental taste for lack of better words so like salt salt tastes like the mineral salt like and that's the thing that tastes like that and all other stuff that tastes salty tastes adjacent to that mineral and sugar is the same way where it's like all other things that taste sweet aren't sugar they're sugary <laughs> and so okay i don't know yeah i don't know what you would replace sugar with if you wanted to make cookies because like when i'm like oh just make a cookie that doesn't have sugar in it but my answer to that is like peanut butter cookies which obviously have sugar in them because they're made of peanut butter <laughs> <laughs> I guess the other thing about sugar is that makes it so good is that doesn't it weren't there studies that it lights up part of your brain that is associated with like drug use or something or am I making that up? I don't know. That sounds right. <laughs> it does sound right. <laughs> I am sure that I saw like a documentary or something. I'll look into this because again, my research for this episode was non-existent, but I'm pretty sure that sugar is very addictive. And, and historically, like you've talked about the history of sugar, but also in the recent past, I, again, I could be, maybe I'll have to cut this because maybe it's not true, but I'm pretty sure that big sugar was behind like the fat scare in the, what was it, the nineties yes, when everybody was true. like, yeah, where everybody was like, oh no, fat is making us fat. And it was really just like big sugar in the background, like in the shadows, like, you know, rubbing their fingers together and being like, yes, yes, fat is the problem. But really, obviously, <laughs> <laughs> it's sugar. So, I mean, we didn't even touch on that. And I feel like that's a whole thing as well. I don't know, like, ah, sugar, yeah. why are you so good, but so evil? This totally has historical antecedents as well, right? Because one of the things that's happened in the recent past is that people have switched from eating their calories to drinking a lot of their calories. And so many of the calories they're drinking are sugary, right? So, I mean, a lot of them are now corn syrupy and not sugary, but yeah. originally most sodas had sugar in them and also Coca-Cola with cane sugar just tastes better. But a lot of this like drinking sugar, people think of it as super recent, as if it's a phenomenon that starts with soda fountains in the 50s and 60s. But Realistically, drinking sugar was the cost-effective, I'm not a rich person way to consume sugar for a long time, right? Like putting sugar in your tea as a pick-me-up, putting sugar in your coffee as a pick-me-up, putting sugar into hot chocolate instead of drinking hot chocolate that is unsweetened and is closer to its like original ceremonial functions. All of these are ways that people are consuming sugar. And like, Obviously, drinking sugarcane juice didn't get popular in the West, but sugar as like a snack that you drink is not an uncommon thing historically, especially in places where sugar actually grows. And then it becomes a mainstay of Starbucks drinks and Coke and all these other beverages. And then 
that is, I think, where I see, oh, like, and now big sugar is like, yes, yes, fat, right. But really the transition that allows for that is that people started drinking sugar, which is like, I don't know, at least 200 years old. Yeah. Well, and that's part of what makes it so hard to give up as well, because like I was saying uh, for my challenge, I I reach for sugar. Um, I'll if I normally I drink water, but if I am in a really rough spot and I need energy, I'll reach for a Coca Cola or an energy drink. Um, because sugar, it tastes good. It's addictive and it gives you energy so there's all of these amazing things that it does for your body people were using it in the past because it's you know it's calorie rich so if you don't have a lot of food then it's a great way to store calories i don't know it's just ah like (laughs) there's a there's a reason that it's so ubiquitous that it's so popular and that it's so hard to give up yeah i think also the things that you have both been mentioning that are replacements are things that are replacements until people got sugar. And then all of a sudden those decline in popularity. So it's like, I associate dates with Christmas. That's when my family eats dates. That's probably because we are not from a place where dates are a thing that are around all of the time. Uh, And so dates become like a seasonal treat. But if you're from a place that has dates, dates are really good until sugar is cheaper. Yeah. And then sugar does the thing that dates used to do for you. And I think that's, become the case in a lot of places that have cultural and historical options for sweetener that are not sugar is once sugar and slave labor appear on the scene, sugar wins out over everything else that people have had. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, that means that the entire industry is sort of founded on this exploitational model where you really can't pay sugarcane workers well enough, otherwise you'd have to raise the price of sugar. I mean, I would argue we absolutely do have to do that and sugar can be more expensive, (laughs) but like the reality is that it would make sugar more expensive and the industry doesn't want that. I think it's also the case that historically, once it becomes part of the working class diet as a calorie, like pick me up or a calorie substitute, it enters the working class diet as more affordable than whatever the alternatives were. And that means that we've got 200 or more years of uphill battle against the idea that the reason sugar is good is because it's cheap. When sugar was a delicacy, maybe that wasn't the case. But when sugar was a delicacy, it also wasn't in everyone's diet. It was in people's diet where it grew. And people's diet who could afford it far away from where it grew. And so we've got 200 years of an uphill battle where if people thought about the labor practices at all, they thought about it as beneficial to them being able to do the labor they were doing. Sugar is like impossibly embedded in exploitative labor structures because not paying the people who grew and harvested sugar is what allowed factory owners to barely pay the people who worked in a factory. And so everyone involved in that consumption chain is dependent on not paying somebody who works at some rung on the ladder below them. Yeah. And this is, I think this is the case as far as I am aware of across the story of sugar is that once it starts being processed for export, it's about not paying people for the pick me up. Yeah. And ultimately like automation and sugar beets is kind of about that too, you know? I mean, there isn't that sort of straightforward 
exploitation because you don't have to pay robots, but that's still a set of workers that now aren't being supportive. So it's kind of a tricky question too, you know? Yeah. And I think there are a lot of scholars now who are working on the way that technologies of control crossed different colonial spaces. So the passport maybe gets invented in one place, but it becomes a vehicle for keeping people who don't look like you out of this place that you've colonized. Yeah. Or, you know, that's the case with a lot of different migration things. But one of the things people don't talk a lot about that is the center of my research now is the institution of the contract. And for the sugar industry in particular, contract labor and contracts signed by indentured workers are the signaling mechanism for this is not slavery. And the difference between sugar as farmed by indentured laborers and sugar as farmed by slaves is the contract. But the realities on the ground for the people that I study are sometimes there are no differences. Like sometimes those differences are non-existent. They're sharing field space with people who were recently enslaved or they're sharing field space with people for whom this has been made the only option for them to work and the signaling mechanism for consumers to believe that they're on the good side is but look everyone who farmed your sugar said they wanted to they all consented and so the institution of the contract i think especially in spaces like canada and this goes back to our talking about the unionization of the red path factory is like the institution of the contract is how i would know if something was fair It's like, oh, I'm paying them the amount I promised I would. But so few occasions are we asking, like, is that amount of pay an amount of pay that is reasonable? Yes. Not just what we promised we would pay. Yeah. And how equal was the bargaining table, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And in the case of sugar, the bargaining table has almost never been equal. Uh, Indentured laborers were often running away from... uh, different social issues on the subcontinent in India, or they were attempting to form a new community because they found the one they were in to be oppressive, or they were leaving because they wanted to improve their family's conditions at home and they were going to send remittances. And that is still the case with a lot of workers, especially in the Dominican Republic, for example. But the bargaining was often done where you signed your indenture contract in the port in India you don't know anything about the person you're about mm-hmm. to go work for. And so now the complaints that I'm reading are like, they're devastating. There is one complaint where uh, a woman, it's like five lines long. And she basically says, I'm sick. The manager told me I have to go out to the field anyway. I can't cause I'm sick. Also, I have an infant baby that if I go out to the field, we'll be alone in the barracks. Oh or the other complaints are things like I told the manager I was sick he locked me in a windowless room with all the other laborers who are sick. When I told him I was sick today, he said, go to the police camp. I ran away to complain instead. <laughs> and so this wow. like question of unequal bargaining terms is not even just about when you said you would do the labor. It's also about what the labor is like in the middle of harvesting sugar. Like sugar cane has to be processed super close to the point at which you cut the plant down. Yes. Because the chemistry of the plant changes the longer it's not attached to its roots and eating nutrients. Yes. And so that means that it is a really labor-intensive practice. It's a very time-sensitive practice. And this becomes tied to the institution of the contract, where one of the central contentions is, are we going to pay laborers for task work, do this many things, and you get this much pay? Or are we going to pay them wage work, 
work for this long and you get this much pay. Yeah. Yeah. And especially for something so seasonal, it's probably not fair to pay what would be the equivalent of an hourly wage if you're working that like 35, 40 hours a week all year, because it's really just during the harvest that they're able to work, at least in this practice, you know? Yeah. And that becomes a central question really early on in the practice of harvesting sugar, uh, you know, slavery is abolished in the 1830s in the British Empire, and indenture contracts are starting to be signed in the 1830s in the British Empire. And that question is immediately on the minds of planters and administrators and workers, because one of the central contestations is workers saying, my contract says this, but I'm not being paid this much. Or, you know, they're arbitrarily shifting the goalposts on the plantation about what constitutes a fair amount of task for the amount that people are being paid. Um, and I don't think those questions have gone away. I just think that we're not familiar with the story of the technology of exploitation. We're familiar with the story of exploitation, and we're familiar with this teleological narrative that says things are less exploitative now. Yeah. But we're not really familiar with what technologies of governance or technologies of control have allowed exploitation to prosper. And by only questioning things like, should I eat sugar? Should I eat sugar from this country? It means that we sometimes drop the ball on things like, should those people have signed that contract? Is yeah. my eating sugar supporting an institution? Yeah. And I will also say that what I read about modern slavery in the sugar industry, it actually sounds quite similar to indentured servitude. I was reading a sort of a report that looks at modern slavery in Brazilian sugarcane. And essentially what ends up happening is they'll recruit from within like the favelas. Um, and in some cases also sort of rural villages that are quite poor, but oftentimes it'll be sort of from the slums and they'll, they'll pay up front. So you get a small amount of pocket money and then there's sort of the promise of good work and good wages and people get driven out into like remote Brazil where they're out of sight, out of mind for most people. And then they're told like you're in debt because of the, the cost of the food and the transport and to get you here. And sometimes also the tools to extract the sugar cane. And then people sort of end up getting stuck in this situation where they have never really actually consented to work in the conditions that they're in, but they now have like this indebtedness um, and they're often sort of illiterate, not able to sort of understand their own rights or to sort of articulate them. And also like they're so far away that they don't have recourse anyway. So I think this is one of the reasons that I was really drawn to the study of indentured labor in particular. And it so happens that indentured labor is attached to the story of sugar. But one of the things that I have found is uh, I took a class in my last year at U of T. I think it's still being taught. It was in the diaspora studies department and it was just called modern slavery. Mm. Immensely depressing. But one of the things that we talked about is, you know, what makes this slavery? And there's a huge reluctance to use the word slavery now because people rightfully are concerned that calling things slavery in a contemporary context diminishes how much attention we pay and how much compassion we have for enslaved peoples who suffered under American chattel slavery, for example. Uh, and that's, especially in the North American context, that is what people think of as slavery is 
the enslavement of people from primarily West Africa being imported to the Americas and the Caribbean. And that's absolutely fair. It's supposed to be paid attention to. Yes. But it means that people aren't looking at a broader swath of institutions of bondage or enslavement across other geographic spaces because they're afraid that doing that means that we have to not pay attention to American chattel slavery. And I I think part of what I'm attempting to do with the work that I'm hoping to publish eventually is that I I want to connect those different strands of indebted. I think that those different strands of indebtedness are attached to each other. Like indenture, Indian indenture only exists because people wanted to fill a gap created by the absence of slavery or the abolition of chattel slavery in the Americas. It is, however, not a brand new institution. And I actually am hoping to study Indian indenture in the Indian Ocean arena, primarily because the Caribbean story is really caught up with the story of American chattel slavery. But the story of indenture in the Indian Ocean arena is about the modification of different forms of debt bondage and slavery that already existed where there was seasonal labor migration between South India and Sri Lanka, or there were people who would go from India to Southeast Asia and they would work in Malaya and then come back to, to mostly South India, but also other parts. Or it's also the story of tea because there are people doing circular migration and involved in certain forms of debt bondage in Assam who are harvesting tea. In fact, that story is mostly about women who are believed to be better at it because their hands are small and they'll be gentle with tea leaves. And so all of these labor (laughs) institutions are connected. And I don't think that it's impossible to recognize how bad one or another of these institutions is without also saying there were parts of other institutions of bondage that were worse. Like the situation of women in the United States who were enslaved is not the same in all cases, but it's also similar enough that I think there should be a solidarity building project where people are like, okay, here's what enslavement looked like here. Here's what enslavement looked like in this other space here. Now we have a list of ways that enslavement looked maybe we could get rid of modern enslavement. And you can't do that if you're not taking an inventory of all the different ways that people have been coerced into labor. So I think I, you know, like I think there's modern slavery in the sugar industry, but where that belongs on a spectrum of coerced to uncoerced labor, we're really bad at identifying. Yeah. And it's also just, it's tough to know because a lot of these plantations are sort of removed from the public eye, and it's hard for journalists to really come in, and researchers, you know. The documentary that really enlightened me about what this looks like now is, I think it's called The Price of Sweetness. You can you can definitely rent it on YouTube, I know okay. that for sure. And that is, like, a journalist managed to get documentary footage of what these plantations are like in the Dominican Republic, and to be honest, they don't look that different from what I am visualizing when I read the complaints of the individuals whose stories I'm writing about now yeah and that was um that was my impression from sort of my brief research is these conditions they seem out of time in like maybe (laughs) the incredibly naive narrative that we tell about the 21st century you know yeah i think you know there's probably something to be said about if we're studying the institution if i'm studying the institution of (laughs) the contract what does fair labor or fair trade standard contracts, what part of the story does that tell? Because that is supposed to be a change, but 
you know, if you're playing good historian and you're looking at change over time, like indenture <laughs> was also supposed to be a change. And it was considered extremely humane. Really? Except that they lived in the same barracks that enslaved people had lived in, yeah. and they were transported on the same boats in many cases, and they were working sometimes side by side with enslaved people because indenture starts before slavery is abolished in a lot of places. But yeah, it's considered this humane, progressive alternative. We won't enslave people. They'll sign contracts. <laughs> They're free, as you can see, since they signed on the line. Yeah, and if if your options are take this indentured servitude for almost no money or starve to death, that's not really a choice. You know what I mean? For sure. And that is also like another whole piece of the story is it, it is so hard. It's what I'm really interested in, but it's so hard. Why did people who signed these contracts choose to go? Yeah. Particularly as indenture is ending. Indenture lasts roughly from the 1830s to the 1920s. And so, for example, the people who I am uh, researching and writing about right now are filing these complaints between 1913 and 1916. At this point, dozens, if not hundreds of people from your village have gone into indenture and possibly come back because indenture was often weakened rooted in specific villages. We're like, oh, this village, almost everyone left. But that means that like, if people are coming back, they're telling you what it's like. Some of them, sure, maybe somebody comes home and lies and they get a bonus from an overseer and then they've recruited you and they get like a commission, which makes commission sound really sketchy and that makes me sad. But, you know, some people are coming back and telling you the truth and people are signing up anyway. Yeah. And so the question of like, what is life like that you would sign this contract knowing what you're walking into is a huge question for me and for my research. Because towards the end of indenture, it's not just like an adventure story where you like sail off to a new land. And that story is itself inaccurate because there were lots of social taboos, lots of dangers, lots of prohibitions against leaving to go do this kind of work that operated alongside a history of mobile labor and of seasonal labor. And so it's less and less simple, this story of like, when is someone coerced? Yeah. When is someone free? And something that uh, you said, Kristen, that I that really made me think was you were like, well, like in so many cases, like they're not literate. How could they be reading the contract? Yeah. And that's the case in the period that I study too. But one of the things that I'm trying to consider is like, okay, if you're not literate, what are the other savvy strategies you use? Because nobody wants to sign up yes. for something <laughs> bad. And so like, what are these workers doing? And one of the things that I think I'm discovering is rumors play a huge mm. part in determining what you do or don't think you're knowledgeably signing up for. And like when people triage and make the decision to work for this pittance of money in a country they've never been to, a lot of it is because, okay, word of mouth has gotten back to me that this is like this on this plantation, that I should sign a contract to work on this plantation, not this other one. And it means that the workers are able to develop some kinds of savvy strategies to negotiate about their pay. Like some of the workers in the period that I'm studying, the planters are complaining that the workers know that there's a labor shortage and that they're demanding more wages. And so while I think the broader institution of indenture is just this awful story of exploitation, there's also these moments that provide some kind of a roadmap for giving workers credit and asking them in the modern context, like, 
what is it actually like? And as a result, what would be fair to you? I don't know. It's this whole topic is so fraught. I feel (laughs) what an uplifting episode this will be. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I would. Yeah, someone's going to be listening to this episode and eating something sweet and then just like wretch. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but yeah, like we've said, there's just no getting around it. Um, There's no solution for this episode other than stop eating sugar but like who's gonna do that (laughs) stop eating sugar isn't even the solution because if we do that then like you were saying then we're not supporting maybe communities that rely on the sugar industry so you know just cutting it out isn't even the most ethical choice except that if we are supporting those communities it's we're supporting the rich sugar barons i don't know i don't know i don't know (laughs) Yeah, the story of sugar is definitely the story that we've all been much more connected to each other for longer than we want to admit. And that that connection has consequences. When someone works to put stuff in your kitchen or on your table, you are partly responsible for what happens to them in order for them to do that for you. This is something that like, it's so, we're so surrounded by sugar and we just, nobody wants to look at how problematic it is. So I think this is one of our biggest blind spots, I don't know, as a culture, because it's just so broken and we're so deep in it. I It's really hard to look at because there's not a lot that as an individual, there's it's hard to know what a solution is. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I remember thinking that when, um, Lex, you were talking about how the focus on, you know, should we do beet sugar, cane sugar, it punts the question of, you know, are these institutions unfair or not? But I think that's also partially because we feel a profound lack of power as like people just living in the world, you know? So, I mean, yeah, one solution, support fair trade, that's probably on the margins a good thing to do. But I guess being politically active is really the only way to to actually sort of push the needle on this kind of an issue. Yeah, I think for those of us who don't live in the places where sugar is grown and live instead in places that eat a lot of it or where it's refined in terms of sugar, the political obligations or necessities are like, you actually have to care about people who are not anywhere near you. Mm -hmm. Like you have to care a lot about people in South Africa or in the Caribbean or in India or in Indonesia. Like you have to care about people in those spaces. If you care about sugar, because like sugar just isn't proximate. There's no, there's no seeing what sugar looks like when it's not inside your food. And there's no seeing the sugar in your food when you live here. One of the things I think about a lot is the province where most indentured laborers worked in the period that I study in South Africa is Natal. And when you land at the airport in Durban, it's maybe a 20 or 30 minute drive from the city center. And Durban is sort of the capital city of where indentured laborers eventually ended up in that period. And on the drive from the airport into the Durban city center, you just pass like 20 minutes worth of sugarcane fields. And I remember being in the car and like looking around at these fields when I was in South Africa. And I was like, it's really dark it looks like a forest. Like the plants are much taller than I thought they would be. They're much closer together than I thought they would be. And I remember thinking like, wow, if someone is working in there, I cannot see them right now. I I think that's emblematic of what it is actually like to think about people in this industry is like, you can't see sugar in your food. You can't see sugar in your Subway sandwich. And you can't see 
workers who are far away from you, but even the people next to them might not be seeing them as often as they need to be seen. And that that significantly impacts your ability to motivate is like the further and the more invisible this thing is, the harder that is for people to talk about. And so it requires you to like, think very carefully about whether you're going to put an extra spoon of sugar in something. And it requires you to like tell everyone uncomfortable things about sugar and ruin Christmas dinner. (laughs) And so, you know, like I am probably going to go home after recording this episode and I will almost certainly do Christmas shopping and then bake. And the thing that I'm going to bake is like this cake that my family really likes uh, that is from Trinidad. And like, it is functionally a loaf cake. And that loaf cake has like, it has flour and stuff in it, but it has raisins and like candied fruit and coconut and sugar and i would love it if the like candied fruit if i knew anything about where it came from but like (laughs) it's candied in sugar and i will probably go home and make that and then my family will be eating it and they're like wow this is amazing and i'll be like and also depressing did you know (laughs) that um and yeah i think that's that's the sort of like that's my best guess at what we can do right yeah. now is just like uncomfortably remind everyone all the time. Because I tried, I tried a similar thing to what you tried, Kylo, when I first discovered this problem with sugar. And I was like, I'm just going to not eat it anymore. And then like, <laughs> I hated my like very poorly processed chain coffee that was clearly burnt <laughs> because sugar and fat are what makes bad coffee taste better. <laughs> and then I like couldn't eat any of my like snack granola bar things because sugar is what sticks it together. Yeah. And then I like couldn't eat my breakfast cereal because it turns out I like the one that has the almonds and the clusters in it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, cool, I'll just be hungry then. That's fine. <laughs> and I thought I was gonna get away with it at dinner and then there was sugar in the creamed corn and there was like you can't. We all like it. There is like a genetic preference for eating this thing. If it's inevitable, you have to make the conversation about it inevitable. So I think so that we're ending this episode on a maybe sort of positive note. What I think <laughs> what I think we should do, Kristen and I, is maybe research some if there's any sort of foundation that you can donate to or activist group that you can become involved in maybe we'll we'll see if there's anything out there that that is good to to share and we'll share that when this episode comes out as maybe if you're feeling overwhelmed and powerless something that you can do i don't know what do you think Kristen? yeah i mean i think even um human rights watch does some investigations around like sugar and labor practices i like them but you had a call to action as well. Hopefully a really good one that solves oh, all no, of our was, problems. I was just going to make a joke that people should tell all their friends to listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> our call to action is make your friends sad about sugar so that they can sit uncomfortably while they eat delicious cookies. Cool. I just like <laughs> gift everyone a tin of cookies, but also gift them sweetness and power. <laughs> like, you know, everyone's profoundly uncomfortable and then has this like tin of cookies to comfort eat while reading this depressing 1980s history that changed multiple fields of scholarship. It's Oh my goodness. I love it. So yeah, I think this episode, it's going to come out just before Valentine's Day. <laughs> so what is a more perfect Valentine's Day gift than sweetness and power? And this episode. <laughs> Definitely download it for your friends <laughs> and listen to it on your date. <laughs> so awkward. <laughs> 
all of my scholarship is like not good fodder for dates. <laughs> like, have you heard about slavery? <laughs> and yeah, it's not not fun. <laughs> Lex, speaking of your research, is there is there anything that you want to plug since you're sitting on a podcast right now? Is there anywhere people can find you or or find out more about what you do? Oh. Whoa, I've never been... Oh, that's so cool. I've never been asked this question. I'm a scholar now. Um, I... Where can people cite you? <laughs> I am, you know, I'm working on researching the project that I described. And if it turns out to be well-formed, then eventually it'll be able to, like, edit the links <laughs> to this journal article if it turns into one of those. But if not, um, I am on Twitter as I think at Lex Sundersing. Um and this my is Twitter how little is... she promotes herself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is like a bad this is a bad moment where I discover that I don't actually understand self-promotion. Um yeah, I'm on Twitter as at Lex Sundersing. Not all of my tweets are about sugar. Some of them are just about movies that I'm watching. <laughs> um, some of those movies are depressing, but some of them are uplifting. And then um I don't have any like scholarly publications to plug at the moment but i would tell people that if you are interested in this kind of topic in an altruistic plug for my alma mater uh the university of toronto has a really good and developing program in uh, food history and in food studies and it is especially pertinent that it is primarily located on the scarborough campus you don't have to be married to the downtown campus to find cool stuff at the university of toronto and then other than that it's just like secretly the story of food is the story of labor. So I would plug, you know, gift your friends a labor history, gift your friends a <laughs> union membership supporting thing <laughs> for Valentine's Day, for Christmas. Take your partner to a unionization protest. <laughs> don't cross picket lines. Yeah, don't cross picket lines. <laughs> Buy people copies of Sweetness and Power. <laughs> Follow my Twitter for sad tweets about labor and food. Amazing. We will do all of those Love things it. and we will share any future stuff that you come up with because it sounds like it's going to be fascinating as well as deeply upsetting, which is what this podcast really aims for, I think. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so Lex, do you have like anyone that you want to call out specifically, like a really supportive best friend or family member? Oh man, I mean the the story of my research is the story of my family feeding me so that I don't have to stop researching. Um, so shout out to my family for making all of the knowledge that I then gifted you <laughs> possible. Um, I think yeah, they're they're the ones who made the episode possible at my end. Amazing. So I guess we'll end it here. Thank you for joining us, Lex. And Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. And uh, hopefully we get to have you back because I feel like you have a lot of really interesting things to say. So we'll do another one of these maybe with you if we have, uh, if we have another topic that comes up. Sounds good. <laughs>